Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. This is the fourth and final episode of our mini-series on the movies either greenlit or picked up by British producer David Putnam during his 15-month run as the head of Columbia Pictures in 1986 and 1987. Our first episode got into the background of who David Putnam was, why a studio like Columbia might be interested in such an out-of-left-field choice for studio head, and why Putnam would leave the position after only 15 months on the job. Our second episode looked at the first 16 films of what have been sardonically called Putnam's Orphans, to be released between August 1987 and June of 1988, and our third focused on the films released between July 1988 and March 1989. Today we'll finish off the remaining orphans, as well as give a summary of Putnam's life after Columbia, and my personal commentary about the films discussed during this series, and their continual mistreatment after a third of a century. You know, just in case you weren't sure where I stood with all this by now. The first film on this episode is also the least expensive movie Putnam would approve for Columbia, Wayne Wang's Eat a Bowl of Tea a return of sorts to the themes of his 1985 independent hit, Dim Sum, after the relative disappointment of his 1987 film, Slam Dance. Wayne would shoot the movie for around a million dollars, even though the New York City-based film was mostly shot in Hong Kong. The film is not easily summed up in a quick synopsis. Suffice to say, it tackles with some comedy the issues of a Chinese-American man and the woman he would become engaged to in an arranged marriage, coming to America after World War II, and the hopes for these two within the entire close-knit community of New York City's Chinatown. Cora Miao, Wang's wife, and Russell Wong, who would also star in Wang's Joy Luck Club several years later, play the couple, and the film also features the great Hong Kong actor Eric Sang and the beloved Chinese-American actor Victor Wong. The film would open at the Paris Theater in New York City on July 21st and would open at the Music Hall Theater in Beverly Hills two weeks later. I don't have any individual week grosses for the film or how long it played in theaters, but the IMDb lists a final gross for the film of $231,423. Without a doubt, the strangest movie Putnam would make at Columbia during his 15 months was West German filmmaker Doris Dory's me and Him. In 1985, Dory had directed a comedy called Men, in which a man moves out of his house after discovering his wife is having an affair, and he becomes roommates with a man who's having an affair with his wife, who is unaware that his new roomie is his new girlfriend's husband. The film became a minor success on the American art house circuit in the summer of 1986, making enough of an impact that Putnam would call up Dory and ask her if she had any movie ideas that could benefit from the backing of a major American studio. She did. A remake of the 1974 Italian film Io e Lui, itself based on a novel by Alberto Maravi, me and him would star After Hours Griffin Dunn as Bert, a New York City man who's... Um, eager phallus begins speaking to him, constantly putting him into awkward situations to the point everyone around him starts to think he's gone completely insane because, of course, only he can hear his unit jabbering away. 
Mark Lynn Baker, the star of Richard Benjamin's 1982 classic My Favorite Year, as well as the long-running 80s ABC sitcom Perfect Strangers, would voice the excitable penis. They would be joined by Little Shop of Horror star Ellen Green as Burt's exasperated wife, as well as Kelly Bishop, David Allen Greer, Craig T. Nelson, and future Bond girl Carrie Lowell, who at the time of filming was married to one man, but by the time this was released, she would be engaged to Dunn. Despite being filmed on the streets of Manhattan, Columbia would not open Me and Him in New York City on its opening day, Friday, August 5th, or in Los Angeles, or in any major city. The film would only open in five theaters in smaller markets, grossing a mere $4,795. In fact, going through both the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times daily papers from August 5th through December 31st, I cannot find any playdates in either city for the movie. But wherever it did play, it didn't do very well. The final reported grosses for me and him totaled just $78,814. Masanori Hata's The Adventures of Milo and Otis was an interesting pickup for David Putnam, a Japanese movie about a friendship between an orange tabby and a pug who grow up together on a farm until they're separated and head off to find each other. It's not quite a documentary, and it's not quite fiction. Like today's reality television, it's a kind of manufactured actuality. But it did feel real enough to Animal Liberation Queensland founder Jackie Kent, who, after the film was released into Japan and Hong Kong in the summer of 1986, accused the filmmakers of killing more than 20 kittens during the production of the film, as well as willfully breaking another cat's paw so that it could appear to look faltering in a shot. The Tasmanian and Victorian branches of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals also lodged complaints against the filmmakers. But, despite all these issues, the film would become the number one film in Japan that year, grossing more than 5.4 billion yen, which at the time also made it the third highest grossing film in Japanese history, behind E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Antarctica, another Japanese movie featuring animals at the center of the story. By the time the film made it to America, three years and three months later, the controversy was mostly forgotten. Columbia trimmed nearly 15 minutes from the already short 92-minute Japanese running time and created a new English-language narration track with Dudley Moore and sent the film out to 239 theaters on August 25, 1989. The film did not do very well, grossing only $470,000 opening weekend. And after 18 weeks in theaters, the film would only gross $2.95 million. But then a funny thing happened. The executives at Columbia gave the film a second release, starting on June 15, 1990, sending it out into 914 theaters, mostly for matinee-only screenings, where the film would gross $1.7 million. By the eighth day of its second run, it would have already grossed more than the original run a year earlier. This time around, The Adventures of Milo and Otis would stay in theaters for 28 weeks and gross more than $10.35 million. Today, there aren't a whole lot of people who do not love Christopher Guest. 
His impact on the world of film comedy over the past 40 years is immeasurable. But can you believe after co-writing and co-starring in This Is Spinal Tap and starring as the six-fingered man in The Princess Bride that he would have trouble getting his first film as a director made? Well, in a sense, yes. As much as we all love Spinal Tap and Princess Bride now, neither were big successes when they were released into theaters. They would only become beloved after being released on home video and playing over and over again on cable. But someone at Paramount had a good feeling about Guest and signed him in 1985 to make his first film as a director. The project he brought them was something he was working on with fellow TAP member Michael McKean and Pee-wee's Big Adventure co-writer Michael Varhall, a comedy about Hollywood called The Big Picture. Unlike most movies he's become famous for, The Big Picture would not be a mockumentary. It would be a comedy about Nick Chapman, a young film school graduate who finds the road to Hollywood success to be not as smooth as he hoped, filled with little vignettes and homages to various movie styles of the past. After Nick wins a prestigious student film award, he signs with an agent and makes a deal to make his dream movie. But then there's a change at the top of the studio, and he finds his project canceled by the new studio head. Broken without any resume to get him something better, Nick must resort to working minimum wage jobs as he claws his way back up the ladder. In a fitting irony, Don Steele, the then head of production at Paramount, would put the big picture into turnaround in 1986. David Putnam, who already enjoyed thumbing his nose, as it were, at the Hollywood establishment, would pick the film up and put the wheels in motion for the $5 million movie to start shooting in February 1988. So why did Steele, when she took over for Putnam in October 1987, not cancel the production again now that it was at Columbia? Could it be they were trying to keep Steve Martin whose Aspen Film Society company was producing the film Happy? Columbia had just released his wonderful comedy Roxanne in June 1987, which was a surprise sleeper hit over the summer, and having a good relationship with the beloved comedian, actor, and writer would make good business sense. Guest would cast then 32-year-old Kevin Bacon as the newly graduated film student and newcomer Emily Longstreth as Nick's girlfriend. The movie would also be stacked with some of the funniest actors working, including co-writer McKean, the now very sorely missed J.T. Walsh, Saturday Night Live's Gary Kroger, Fran Drescher, who also had a memorable cameo in Spinal Tap, John Cleese, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Martin Short as Nikki's very strange agent. Terry Hatcher would be featured in one of her earliest roles as a Hollywood starlet who Nick has, well, we'll leave it at impure thoughts over. The film would shoot for four weeks throughout Los Angeles, and Guest would have his rough cut ready by the end of summer. And then he showed that rough cut to Don Steele. Maybe she didn't read the rewrite he did after the movie moved from Paramount to Columbia. Maybe she didn't read the coverage by one of her underlings. But rumor has it that she went apocalyptic while watching it. Remember a moment ago when I said one of the plot points was a regime change at the studio which led to Nick's film getting cancelled? While J.T. Walsh's studio head Alan Habel did not resemble David Putnam in any way, shape, or form, Steele very much saw herself in Tracy Brooke Swope's not particularly kind performance 
as Hable's replacement, the merciless Lisa Pressman. Steele's response was to try and sell the completed film to another distributor. And in that 1989 New York Times interview with Don Steele, it is said that no less than 18 companies watched the film for possible pickup. What is unsaid in the article was that a great deal of interest in the film came from guests being able to get Steele to allow it to be screened as the mystery film at the then United States Film Festival in Park City, Utah in late January 1989. The audience at the film festival loved the movie, which took wonderfully broad swipes at the hand that fed it, but no other company picked the movie up from Columbia. When Columbia finally did release the film on September 15th, it would play in just three theaters, the 59th Street East in New York City, the Century 14 in Century City, and the Universal City 18 at Universal Studios just outside Hollywood. Vincent Camby of the New York Times would praise the comedic talents of Bacon and recognize that Short runs away with the movie, but finishes his review saying that the film would probably look better on the small screen. Michael Wilmington of the Los Angeles Times was less enthusiastic, saying Guest had his heart in the right place, but the film was no match for a true Hollywood satire like Preston Sturgis's Sullivan's Travels. The newspaper ads would include quotes from CBS TV's Los Angeles film critic Gary Franklin and Jeffrey Lyons from Sneak Previews, which is who the studios would quote when you couldn't get a good quote from Vincent Camby or Michael Wilmington. But the film would gross $33,000 from those three theaters in its first three days. Its $11,000 per screen average was 20% better than Norman Jewison's new drama In Country, which also opened the same day and featured full-page ads in both the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, touting reviews from across the country that Bruce Willis should now be seen as a major dramatic actor. The big picture, on the other hand, would only get quarter-page ads at best. And after that, the film would never play in more than eight theaters on any given weekend and would disappear after six weeks with a final gross of just $117,000. And it would be another seven years before Guest would make his breakthrough second feature film, Waiting for Guffman. Louis Puenzo's Old Gringo would feature Gregory Peck in his last starring role in film as American writer Ambrose Bierce, who finds himself in a romantic love triangle with an American schoolteacher played by Jane Fonda and a general with the Mexican Revolutionary Army played by Jimmy Smits. According to a 1989 Los Angeles Times interview with the film's producer and star Jane Fonda, she says that the day she pitched the movie to Putnam, she knew that he was the right person to help develop it. For the role of Ambrose Bierce, producer Fonda first pursued Paul Newman before getting Burt Lancaster. But then Lancaster couldn't get insured due to his heart condition, even though he had just passed a medical examination and had just completed another Columbia film, Rocket Gibraltar. So Fonda brought in Peck, who had also tried to acquire the film rights to the novel by Carlos Fuentes. Lancaster would be insured for his next and what would be his final feature film appearance in Field of Dreams, but the role of Moonlight Graham was a far less demanding role than Ambrose Bierce. The film wouldn't go into production until after Putnam's departure, but sets were already being built, and the film was weeks from shooting. To Steele's credit, she did allow the film to continue, 
telling Fonda that she was getting $25 million in 14 weeks to make the movie, and to not come back asking for more. But Fonda did go back, because they needed a couple extra days at the end of the shoot for a complicated shot. Steele again acquiesced, giving them another million dollars in another week to finish up. Because, although she hadn't been in a major box office success since 1981's On Golden Pond, which she also helped produce, she was still Jane Fonda. She still had fans, and very few Fonda movies lost money in those days. Old Gringo would be one of those exceptions. When the film opened on October 6th, Columbia opted for what would be called a moderate release pattern, hitting 237 theaters in major markets, including 46 theaters in the New York City metro area and 41 in and around Los Angeles, hoping that good reviews, good word of mouth, and good ticket sales would help boost the movie in the future in smaller markets. Sheila Benson of the Los Angeles Times and David Sheehan, the movie critic for Los Angeles' NBC television station, would praise the scale of Puenzo's epic, and especially Peck's performance, but audiences would not be all that impressed with the film. It would receive a B score from CinemaScore audiences and open with just $1.15 million in ticket sales over the four-day Columbus Day holiday weekend. After 12 weeks of mostly dollar house playdates, the film would leave theaters with $3.57 million in its coffers. In keeping with his desire to make Columbia a truly global film studio, he would bring in Polish filmmaker Agnieszka Holland to make her first English-language film, To Kill a Priest. Holland, who had fled her native country for France in 1981, just before the government imposed martial law, had wanted to make a movie about the Polish Roman Catholic priest Jerzy Popolusku, who had been murdered by three members of the Polish secret police in 1984, in part for becoming associated with the opposition Solidarity Trade Union. She would write her script in her native Polish, and then have writer Michael Cooper translate the script before sending it off to Putnam. The story checked many boxes for Putnam, who preferred to make movies that said something about the human condition, and shooting would begin in France in October 1987. Holland would assemble a truly world-class cast for the film. French actor Christopher Lambert would play Father Alec, the movie stand-in for Papalusku, American Ed Harris, the leader of the team that would commit the murder, and a who's who of British actors including Joss Ackland, Pete Postlewaite, Tim Roth, Timothy Spall, and Joanne Whaley. But the film would only open in one theater on October 13, 1989, the Broadway Theater in Chicago. Dave Kerr of the Chicago Tribune would note Holland's broad, physical, psychologically intense style of European filmmaking didn't translate well to Hollywood. But he did note that she had created several extremely powerful sequences for the film. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times was less kind, giving the film only two stars, and stating the film left him quite puzzled. But how well the film did at the Broadway theater is anyone's guess. Columbia never released any grosses, and I cannot find any other theater in the country that played the film. The last Putnam film that would be released by Columbia in 1989 would be Howard Bruckner's Bloodhounds of Broadway, 
Bruckner was a documentary filmmaker whose first movie, Burroughs the Movie, would be the only documentary that would be made with the approval of and participation of the famed beat writer William S. Burroughs, while his second documentary followed the famed theater director Robert Wilson as he attempted to stage an epic 12-hour multinational opera for the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. For his first dramatic narrative, Bruckner would make a 1920s period ensemble movie based on four stories by Damon Runyon. And what a cast Bruckner would assemble. Steve Buscemi, Matt Dillon, Jennifer Grey, Julie Haggerty, Rutger Hauer, Madonna, Isai Morales, Anita Morris, Randy Quaid, Alan Ruck, and Fisher Stevens. The $4 million film would begin production around New Jersey in mid-December 1987. But what nobody in the cast or crew, or at the studio, knew at the time that Bruckner was dying of AIDS. He had gotten the diagnosis back in August and had been taking AZT to keep the disease under some kind of control. But he would quit taking his drug regimen just before shooting commenced because he felt the drug was clouding his judgment. Bruckner was able to complete shooting in early February of 1988 and would churn in his cut of the film before he died on April 27, 1989. He would be buried three days later on what would have been his 35th birthday. Without its director to keep his vision intact, the studio started tinkering with the film, recutting what they felt were confusing scenes and having actors come in to record narration to cover what was cut. The film would have its world premiere at the Directors Guild in Los Angeles on October 30th, a benefit premiere supporting AIDS Project Los Angeles in honor of its late director, before opening in five theaters, including the Plaza Theater in New York City, and the Cineplex Century Plaza Cinemas in Los Angeles on November 3rd. The reviews were polite, but not great, and not even Madonna's fans could make it a hit film. In its opening weekend, the film would only gross $15,872, and it would be gone after just nine weeks in theaters and $43,671 in ticket sales. A few months later, After the film closed, and in anticipation of the television premiere on PBS's American Playhouse, an article in The Hollywood Reporter would note that the movie screened for almost two weeks at the Plaza Theater in New York City before anyone noticed the film was being screened without its final reel. Whoopsie! When the nominations for the 62nd Academy Awards were announced on February 14, 1990, it was a tale of a Columbia Pictures at a crossroad. One film greenlit by Don Steele, Rob Reiner's romantic comedy When Harry Met Sally, would be nominated for Best Original Screenplay, while one film greenlit by David Putnam, who had already been away from his job at the studio for nearly two and a half years, got nominated for four awards. That film, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Steele, who was the first ever female head of a movie studio when she took the job in 1987 after Putnam's exit, had herself resigned from the position five weeks earlier when new Columbia TriStar owner Sony had hired Peter Goober and John Peters to run the combined studio. And once again for the second year in a row, Columbia would go home empty-handed. The week before the 62nd Oscar nominations were announced saw the limited release of the final Putnam Orphan into theaters, Emir Custodica's Time of the Gypsies. 
And like so many other Putnam projects, this one was aimed at a global audience instead of just America and a few prized territories. Costa Rica was another up-and-coming filmmaker on the world stage. His first film, Do You Remember Dolly Bell, had won the Silver Bear at the 1981 Venice Film Festival, while his second film, While Father Was Away on Business, won the Palm d'Or at the 1985 Cannes Film Festival and would be nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the 58th Academy Awards. For his third film, Costa Rica decided he wanted to make something more fantastic than his previous dramas. Thus, he came up with the story of a young Romani man with magical powers who is tricked into engaging in petty crime. The film would have its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in May 1989, where it would be in competition for the Palme d'Or, which would be awarded that year to Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. But Costa Rica would be awarded the Best Director Prize over such filmmakers and movies as Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, Giuseppe Tonatore's Cinema Paradiso, Shohei Amamura's Black Rain, and Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train. Columbia would time that February 9, 1990 opening to a hoped-for Best Foreign Language Film nomination. The studio would support the film with a third-page ad in both the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times on opening day, a rarity for a foreign language film, and book the film into really good theaters, the Regency Cinema in New York and the AMC Century 14 in Los Angeles. They would even bring Costa Rica to America, where he'd give interviews for the major newspapers, who all played up the director and an expected nomination for Best Foreign Language Film. But as I already said, Columbia only got nominations for two films that year, and Time of the Gypsies was not one of them. So while the opening weekend gross for those two theaters in L.A. and New York City would top $40,000, once that nomination didn't happen, the film would slowly die out. It would open in Chicago on February 16th, where Roger Ebert would give it a three-star review, but that booking would have been cemented before the Oscar nominations were announced. The film would be out of theaters for the most part by the time the Oscars were announced six weeks later, with a final gross of $280,000. After Putnam and his wife Patty returned to England in early 1988, he would return to producing films, starting with the 1990 World War II drama Memphis Bell. He'd also re-team with Chariots of Fire Colin Willand on a 1994 adaptation of the classic children's novel War of the Buttons, and he'd also re-team with local hero writer-director Bill Forsyth on his 1994 film Being Human with Robin Williams and John Turturro. In 1995, David Putnam was appointed as a Knight Bachelor in the British Empire to go along with his Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire awarded to him in 1983, which would officially make him Sir David Putnam. On October 27, 1997, he'd become Lord David Putnam, when he was awarded life peerage as a Lord Temporal. In his lifetime, Lord Putnam has been awarded more than 50 honorary degrees and fellowships from schools and organizations around the world, including a BAFTA fellowship in 2006, an occasion where he paid honor to his late father, who had passed away before seeing his son win the Oscar for Chariots of Fire, as well as honor contemporary producers and filmmakers like George Clooney for making films with integrity. 
Lord Putnam's time at Columbia Pictures highlighted the main argument amongst those who love, work, and or cover films in the film industry. Are films art, or are they commerce? In his 2000 book, Movies and Money, Putnam reflected on his time at Columbia. He stated that although many factors contributed to his eventual departure from the studio in September 1987, there was always one irreconcilable conflict of demands that made the job impossibly frustrating and ultimately unsatisfying. The conflict between two different ideas of cinema, which seemed to be at the heart of everything, which was balancing artistic ambition with an honest attempt to reward the film's investors. Most of the films he approved or acquired during his time at Columbia were never going to be any kind of blockbuster. Certainly a West German remake of a, an Italian sex comedy about a guy and his talking penis was never going to take the world by storm. But some of these movies could have become a decent box office success with a little more studio support. And by a bit more, I mean given any, really. But before we finish with this series, I want to point out that in that 1989 article I mentioned before, Dawn Steele said that she had spent most of her first two years at Columbia handling the 33 films Putnam left behind when he resigned. And we've covered 35 films, so uh, what's up with that? Well, if you remember, two of the films we covered in Episode 2 were released before Putnam left Columbia and Steele took over. So that should make it even. 33 Putnam Orphans, 33 movies released after Putnam's exit. Except even that's not correct. Because there's still two more Putnam movies that Steele didn't account for in that interview. Because Columbia would not actually release them. One of them was Vince DiPersio's Flying Blind, a lower-budgeted melodrama set in 1965 Philadelphia, starring Richard Panabianco, Frank Whaley, and Maura Tierney. The movie was a co-production between Columbia and the NBC television network. Don Steele would veto a theatrical release for the film, and it would air on NBC on July 30, 1990. The other film that Columbia would not release, I cannot account for, outside of a mention in that New York Times interview. Al Jean Harmitz, the interviewer, mentions a film called 40, Just Like America, another Serbo-Croatian movie like Amir Kustarika's Time of the Gypsies, which Harmitz says was rejected by Columbia as a mess and was given back outright to its producer. I cannot find anything else about this film, who was in it, who directed it, who wrote it, if it was ever picked up by another distributor, if it ever even got released anywhere, nothing. It should also be noted that some sources on the internet say that the Julian Temple musical comedy Earth Girls Are Easy, starring Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, Jim Carrey, and Damon Wayans, was a Columbia Pictures movie approved by David Putnam and sold off to Vestron Pictures, but this is not true. Earth Girls Are Easy was originally set up at Warner Brothers, who dropped the project in 1986 after the worldwide failure of Temple's previous film, the much-hyped Absolute Beginners. Then, Dino De Laurentiis picked up the project and produced it in 1987, but his company would go bankrupt before the film could be released, as we previously covered in our De Laurentiis Entertainment Group episode number 21 back in September. 
Thus Drawn Pictures would acquire Earth Girls Are Easy from the DEG bankruptcy sale. We'll be talking about Earth Girls Are Easy and Vestron Pictures in a future episode. And then there were a number of films in development with Putnam at Columbia that would eventually be put into turnaround by Steele that she would not mention in that interview. I was able to find information about seven of those. Being a fan of old Hollywood, Putnam was working with the legendary writer and director Richard Brooks, whose credits include Blackboard Jungle, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Elmer Gantry in Cold Blood, and Looking for Mr. Goodbar, on a drama based on a 1950 Screen Directors Guild showdown between Cecil B. DeMille and then-Guild President Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who had balked at imposing a loyalty oath for Guild members in the middle of the Red Scare. When the Los Angeles Times did an article about some of the Putnam projects in limbo the week that he left the studio, Brooks would be quoted as saying, Having the project be in jeopardy was like someone dropping the ball in the outfield at Dodger Stadium and everyone waiting around to see who's going to pick it back up. Brooks also said about Putnam's departure that he wasn't sure whether he should be congratulating or consoling the departing studio head. Brooks would pass away in 1992, never getting to make this final project. Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenias, the writers behind Vice Versa, were working on an Italian-based comedy called Napoli. They were actually in Italy working on the screenplay when they found out Putnam would be leaving the studio and expressed confidence that the film would be made either with the new studio head or at another studio. The film was never made, but the pair would team up with Putnam friend Alan Parker in 1991, writing an adaptation of the Roddy Doyle novel The Commitments for the director and securing a Writers Guild nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Producer Deborah Bloom was developing a movie called Bad Karma, which was based on a precedent-setting murder case in Berkeley in 1969. That film would never get made. Stanley Kramer, the socially conscious filmmaker behind such films as The Defiant Ones, Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner?, was developing a movie based on the then-recent Chernobyl nuclear plant accident. It would be, according to Kramer, the first time he would experience the cancellation of a project due to changes in studio management. That film would never get made. Craig Zidane, the producer of Footloose, who would produce the Chicago and the 2007 film adaptation of the Broadway musical version of John Waters' 1988 comedy Hairspray, was working on a thriller called Blind Luck about a blind boy who quote-unquote witnesses a murder. Shooting locations had already been selected, and they were awaiting studio approval to begin official pre-production on the film when Putnam left. The film would never get made. Iconoclastic filmmaker Alan Rudolph had written a screenplay based on the Gary Larson comic strip The Far Side and was in the process of scouting locations in anticipation of a March 1988 start date. The film would never get made. And then there was Toys, a pet project from filmmaker Barry Levinson that was put into turnaround by 20th Century Fox and picked up by Putnam, only to have Fox pick it back up when Steele put it into turnaround. The film would get made in 1992 with Robin Williams. And thus we have finally come to the end of our journey. 
The films of David Putnam at Columbia would, in all likelihood, have been solid singles and doubles in baseball parlance, often used to describe box office performance, had they been given a proper chance with audiences. IP hadn't become king of Hollywood quite yet, and Wall Street NBA types hadn't fully invaded the C-suites. So a film like A Time of Destiny could have possibly grossed a solid $20 million had it been fully marketed to people who enjoy love stories and or war stories. A sumptuous, family-friendly fantasy from one of cinema's best visual masters could have been something beloved by many had it been handled by a studio head who was also an Oscar-winning film producer instead of a studio head who got their start in the merchandising department. Maybe that Spike Lee movie that used Homecoming at a historically black college could have been handled better by being released in early fall, around the time that Homecoming is happening at historically black colleges and universities, instead of being dumped in the middle of winter. Maybe a studio head who had worked as a film producer could have handled the release of what would become the Best Picture winner of the year before, instead of alienating a top exhibitor and hurting the box office chances of several other films caught in the crossfire. But then, maybe a studio head should have recognized that you aren't going to win many games hitting only singles and doubles, that you need a couple of strong hitters capable of changing the game, or at least a few movies that would have given some kind of crossover appeal. If you look at the highest-grossing movies of 1987, three of the top ten were from Paramount, two each were from Warner Brothers and Disney, and one each from Orion, 20th Century Fox, and Universal. Columbia's highest entry for the year was a pre-Putnam film, La Bamba, which would come in 13th place. And then you have to go down to 22nd to hit the next Columbia film, Roxanne. In 1988, Disney and its adult division, Touchstone, captured four of the top ten films, with two each from Paramount and Fox, and one each from MGM and Warners. The highest-placing Columbia film of 1988? The Last Emperor, which was released in the late fall of 1987, which came in 30th place. But 1989? Columbia would capture 7th place with Ghostbusters 2, and 11th place with When Harry Met Sally. And that, to me, is where Lord David Putnam faltered at Columbia. In several sources I found while researching this series, I found quotes where Putnam professed his desire to take Columbia back to the ways of the Hollywood studio system, where you had actors and writers and producers and directors under contract making movies at that studio, and that studio alone, and where you had A movies and B movies, where the A movies with the big talents on both sides of the camera, helping to support the B movies with their lower budgets and newer talents, learning how to make movies the studio way. One look at Putnam's projects in, at Columbia in those 15 months, there was a whole lot of B-movies and not enough A-movies to support them. Maybe the script for Jagged Edge 2 did suck. Maybe it wouldn't have made for a very good film. But maybe it would have done well enough at the box office to help pay for Time of the Gypsies and Me and Him. Maybe the script that Dan Aykroyd was working on for Ghostbusters 2 in 1986 was better than the one that was used to film the movie in 1988. It couldn't have been much worse. And maybe Ghostbusters 2 in 1987 would have performed better than the one that was released in 1989 because audiences were at this point primed to expect a sequel after two or three years. 
We'll never know. But when all is said and done, David Putnam's time at Columbia was a failure, but a noble failure that failed for the right reasons. It was true in 1987, and it's still true today. The movie industry needs to make a wider variety of movies than just big-budgeted blockbuster popcorn entertainment, and it needs audiences to support more than just big-budget blockbuster popcorn entertainment. And I am not against big-budget blockbuster popcorn entertainment films. I love Marvel movies as much as the next person. I own every MCU movie on Blu-ray, and many of them in 4K UHD. I love Star Wars. I'm cool with blockbusters. But I'm also cool with Knives Out and Jojo Rabbit and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I'm also cool with the Ip Man movies and The Burial of Kojo, big-budget Asian cinema, and minuscule-budget movies from Africa. I'm cool with documentaries and concert films and comedies from people who shoot their movies on an iPhone. There needs to be balance, and tipping too far in either direction upsets the natural order of things. Who knows what David Putnam could have done for Columbia had they had more confidence in him? Who knows what Columbia could have been if David Putnam had more confidence in filmmakers who didn't do things particularly like he did them? Columbia took the biggest chance of any studio in the 1980s bringing Putnam, a true Hollywood outsider, into the fold instead of bringing in another Hollywood suit from the revolving doors of other studios. Since Putnam's exit from Hollywood in 1987, almost every studio would stop being the leaders in their own industry and start becoming small cogs in other companies' machinery. Columbia itself would go from being a fairly decent-sized cog in Coca-Cola's machinery to a very tiny cog within Sony's. Paramount would go from being a fairly big cog in the Gulf and Western machine to a tiny cog in the Viacom machinery, which itself is a small part of the National Amusements machinery. Warner Brothers went from being its own machine to becoming part of a new machine with magazine publisher Time Incorporated to becoming a big part of the America Online machine to now being a small part of the very big AT&T machine. Universal would go from being its own machine to becoming a part of a small part of a Japanese electronics conglomerate machine to becoming a bigger part of a Canadian liquor company machine, to becoming a smaller part of a French media company's machine, to becoming a tiny part of the General Electric machine, to now being a bigger part in a telecommunications conglomerate machine. 20th Century Fox went from being a small part of an oil company's machine to an even smaller part of an Australian media company's machine, to now being completely absorbed into another media company's machine existing pretty much now as a label for the biggest entertainment company in the world. Ironically, that company, the Walt Disney Company, was the one that had spent the first half of the 80s being the weakest of the major studios, until they brought in former Paramount executives Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg and former Warner Brothers executive Frank Wells in 1984, who helped put the Disney on the path it now enjoys today. It is my hope that in the coming years, the films of David Putnam at Columbia become better known to the public and better available. Of the movies we've covered during the series, there are seven that have never been made available on Blu-ray or are available to be rented or purchased from any streaming site in America. 
And not all of those are the smallest films with the smallest budgets. One of them is an Oscar nominee for Best Picture, while another stars two Oscar-winning actors. Another six movies are available to be streamed for free on various ad-supported services. The vast majority can be rented or purchased online from a variety of streaming services, but if we as a film community don't ever talk about these films, they may become lost to future generations. So if there's some movies on this list that you've never seen and do interest you, check them out. If you have a friend or family member who likes one of the actors or filmmakers we've discussed, ask them if they've seen that movie. Keep that dialogue going. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, produced, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 